If you like this podcast, you're going to really like McClanahan Academy. Head over to McClanahanAcademy.com. That's McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll. It's free of charge. You get a free class, 10 Myths of American History. When you do enroll, I've got nearly 20 classes there available for purchase. Go to McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll today and get a real history education. The Brian McClanahan Show, episode 727. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to the Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to be back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, like my Facebook page, and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. Find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. Wire there. Give me that email address. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, free audiobook of the same title read by yours truly. You can support the show by going to mclanahanacademy.com. You've already heard about it, but of course, I've got a new class out there, Reading Jefferson Davis. Use the coupon code DAVIS to get 60 bucks off. I'll talk about the class tomorrow. I do want you to pick it up. It's one of the best, right? So I've produced a lot of reading courses this year, and um, I think that's the best way to get to the core or the heart of a matter, and I'll talk about that again tomorrow too, but Pick up that class. It's really good. Also, I've got many other classes for purchase there. And of course, Black Friday's coming up. Holiday season's coming up. Get those classes. I'll have some sales. So you're going to want to be picking up McClanahan Academy in the next couple of months. You can also support the show by clicking on the support tab at brianmcclanahan.com. If you're watching on YouTube, click on the little heart button under the video. That's the super thanks button. You can throw a few pennies my way either way or go to anchor.fm and become a subscriber. You can also click on the shop tab and get my logo and all kinds of cool stuff. But as always, rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. Let people know you like it. Give it that five-star review. Leave a text review. If you're on YouTube, comment for the algorithm. It does help, right? So I do appreciate all of the support. And if you want to hear something, send it to me. In fact, this is a listener-generated episode. Now, I was going to do something different. I was going to do something on Robert E. Lee, and I alluded to that. But um, I want to change gears and, and move that a little bit later. That it's also a listener-generated episode, but this topic was um, something that came through right about the time I was going to record the Lee uh, the Lee episode, and so I wanted to talk about it. And it's a piece by John Meacham in Time Magazine, and it was a listener that sent this to me and said, uh, "Hey, what do you, you know? What does Brian McClanahan think about this?" Well. I couldn't resist. John Meacham, of course, is one of the most important popular historians in the United States. Not because he's good, but because he says all the right things. And of course, this is the guy that uh, was involved in uh, in President Brandon's, uh, you know, Dark Brandon speech. He was involved in that. I mean, this is a man that really hates a certain portion of the American public. And he's a firm Lincolnian. He believes in the power of the central government and the power of the presidency, the elected dictatorship, essentially, or the elected king, to do just about anything he wants. And, of course, as a Lincolnian, and I talked about this last week with the Lincolnian myths, as a Lincolnian, he is firmly entrenched in this belief that Lincoln is the most important person in America, and that myth survives to this day. In fact, the title of this piece in Time magazine, Lincoln saved American democracy. <laughs> we can too. Lincoln saved American democracy. Now, think about that phrase for a second. If you're a longtime listener of the show, you know what I'm going to say about this. But I have to do it anyways. But think about that phrase for a second. Lincoln 
in Gettysburg in 1863, November of 1863, gives the Gettysburg Address, which is the pivot point for the Lincoln myth, right? I mean, that's where we really get it from. Now, he wasn't alone in saying the things about the declaration that he said in that, in that address. Republicans have been saying these things for years. But Lincoln is going to say in that address that he's saving government of the people, by the people, and for the people. Well, that's, that would have been news to the South, who seceded through popular elected conventions in larger numbers than what supported the American War for Independence. And as H.L. Mencken pointed out, if Lincoln really wanted to save government of the people, by the people, and for the people, he would have done it by letting the South go. But Lincoln called that anarchy, and, he, and Meacham gets into that. Of course, it's a bad definition of it, but he calls it anarchy. And now you, you see people say these exact same things. I remember years ago, there was a debate between Tom Woods and some other law professor somewhere. And they were discussing nullification. And the professor, not, not Tom, but the other professor said, nullification is lawlessness. It's anarchy. right? And this is the general impression you get. And why do they say that? Well, because of Abraham Lincoln. And this is why Lincoln is the real pivot point in America and why he's so important as far as myth-making in American history. It's not true. There's no anarchy or lawlessness in secession. In fact, you would say what Lincoln was doing is really lawless. There was no precedent for it. To invade the states, you could say, well, what about Jackson? What about Washington? Washington, Whiskey Rebellion, Andrew Jackson, Force Bill. But the way that Lincoln did it was unprecedented and calling up 75,000 troops, right? Unprecedented. Uh, not just that, um, the fact that he was going to march them through states. Now, we know the Whiskey Rebellion. And look, in nine presidents who screwed up America, I taught, I was, I'm very critical of the Washington administration for doing that. But Washington hung back, right? I mean, he, he wasn't so certain about this. And we know the, the governor of Pennsylvania, Supreme Court Justice, Chief Justice, in fact, said that they couldn't do this, the Attorney General. This was all Alexander Hamilton. But this is why Maryland blocked the troops. It's why Virginia seceded, North Carolina seceded, Tennessee it's why they did it, right? Arkansas. It's why they left the Union, because they were not going to participate in the complete overthrow of the American constitutional order. We know that in the period during ratification, it was said that the general government cannot coerce states in their political capacity. Oliver Ellsworth said it, and other people said it too. Oliver Wolcott. I mean, this was the point. These are Northerners, by the way. So I want to read this piece. It's a, it's a, I mean, look, Meacham's a good writer, but the problem is... Um, he's, well, there's just so many problems. We'll, we'll get to it, okay? All right, so he begins, he says, at noon on Monday, March 4th, 1861, a day that observers noted had dawned cloudy and raw, but turned bright and warm, of course, because the great demigod has now ascended to the throne, right? So it was cloudy and raw, but then bright and warm because Lincoln was saving things. This is the, Look at the imagery he's using here. Abraham Lincoln emerged from the 14th Street Northwest door of Willard's Hotel, accompanied by President James Buchanan. The two men rode together in an open carriage up Pennsylvania Avenue, bound for the covered platform that had been erected on the east front for the presidential inauguration. Double files of cavalrymen escorted the process to the Capitol. Cross streets had been closed to secure the route in the event of attack. Sharpshooters were stationed on rooftops along the avenue with orders, an officer recalled, to watch the windows on the opposite side and to fire upon them in case any attempt should be made to fire from those windows on the presidential carriage. So we're in a, 
we're in a military occupation zone now. And people pointed this out. Jefferson Davis had none of this <laughs> in Montgomery. None. It's nothing like this. But you had this in Washington, D.C. So the image, of course, is trying to be set up here. Now, you could say, well, there were threats of assassination. There were people who were talking about assassinating Lincoln. No one was talking about doing that to Davis. But see, the image is this. March 4th, 1861 is just like January 6th, 2021. And the barricades that went up in Washington, D.C. were just like this. They're there to protect the government from evil right-wingers. This is the image he's trying to portray here. An hour later, hatless and adjusting his eyeglasses, Abraham Lincoln, his inaugural dress in hand, stood and gazed out across a large audience. Well, if you look at the images, it's not really that large. I mean, not like today. It's okay, but um, people did sit and attend these things. Federal artillery was deployed on a nearby hilltop. hilltop. I mean, so you got cannons protecting, supposedly protecting this government. Well, why did it even have to come to that? I mean, did it have to be that way? There was no, at this point, there's been no shots fired at all. The South hasn't done anything. Why would they attack Abraham Lincoln? Their position, as Jefferson Davis had made clear before this, was peace. So why all the the military theater? Because this is what it was. It was military theater. Plainly, the central idea of secession is the essence of anarchy, the new president said. Why should there not be a patient confidence in the ultimate justice of the people? Well, that's a good question, Abe, because you are going to violate that within about a month by sending a relief expedition to Fort Sumter and Fort Pickens. Why not have the ultimate justice of the people say, we don't want to be part of your government anymore? I mean, it could have been done. Is there any better or equal hope in the world? In your hands, my dissatisfied fellow countrymen, and not in mine, is a momentous issue of civil war. The government will not assail you. You can have no conflict without being yourselves the aggressors. Now, these words are important. Of course, I have a reading Abraham Lincoln class at McClanahan Academy, too, that you should pick up. But he's already setting the stage for what's going to happen in April when he sends the relief expedition. He knows exactly what's going to happen because he was told. If you send those expeditions to Florida and South Carolina, they're going to be shot at. And then, of course, Lincoln could say, well, the war was in your hands. You were the aggressors, not me. So therefore, you started it. But what about all this martial array around Washington, D.C.? Is that not fairly aggressive? I mean, if you really believed that there was a situation where this was not about malice, we should just all get along, why have all the sharpshooters and the roads closed off and the cannons and the cavalry? Why do all that? Well, because Lincoln knew exactly what he was doing. He wanted to show, and the Republican Party wanted to show, that they're going to put on a political theater, a military theater, so that they can scare the other side into doing nothing. You have no oath registered in heaven to destroy the government. Well, they weren't destroying anything. Abraham Lincoln has just been inaugurated. The government still exists. The Congress still exists. The Supreme Court still exists. All that still exists. How is the government destroyed? Well, you just don't have, at that point, seven states. But the government still exists. These are questions that nobody really asks. If you've signed up for the live class, then I'm going to be, uh, it's going to be starting here soon, and we're going to probably do it again next year, maybe a different class, or maybe the same class. But either way, if you've got that, 
we're going to discuss these issues in a way that uh, I think is, I mean, sometimes I think it gets more confusing. But on the other hand, we're going to look at all the different ways in which this question could be answered. Well, I shall have the most solemn one to preserve, protect, and defend it. Right? So Lincoln's already, <laughs> Lincoln's already setting out. Okay, you have no oath to destroy the government. I have an oath to preserve, protect, and defend it. Now, notice, that's not the oath that Lincoln takes. He doesn't take an oath to preserve, protect, and defend the government. He takes an oath to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution. Right? That's his oath. Not the government, right? But the Constitution. It's a big difference. If he's preserving, protecting, and defending the Constitution, then he has to let the South go. Hated and hailed, ex excoriated and revered, Abraham Lincoln served as President of the United States in an existential hour. Other presidents have been confronted with momentous decisions of war and peace, of life and death, of freedom and power. Yet it fell to Lincoln to adjudicate whether the nation would, in his phrase, remain half slave and half free. See, it all comes down to this. I mean, it's just, that's what Lincoln has to adjudicate. This is, this is the lawgiver. Salone, standing up there. The lawgiver. I will give you law. The, world, the United States has to be half slave or half free. Can't be both. Has to be all or one or the other and whether the American experiment would survive the treason of a rebellious white South that put its own interests ahead of the Union itself. A treasonous, rebellious. Just the language is stupid. There's no treason here. There's no rebellion. Not in March of 1861. There's, there's not, not even a shot been fired yet. We've already had from November to March. Think about that. Four months. We've already had four months nearly of peace between two separate entities. No shots have been fired. Nothing has happened. So how is this rebellious? Right? And how do you define treason? These are big questions. But the white South, not just the South, the white South. I mean, look at what Meacham does here. A president who led a divided country in which an implacable minority gave no quarter in a clash over power, race, identity, money, and faith has much to teach us in our own 21st century moment of profound polarization, passionate disagreement, and differing understandings of reality. <laughs> right. A president who led a divided country in which an implacable minority, yeah, the Republicans, gave no quarter in a clash over power. No, they didn't. They Launched an invasion of the South. Race. Lincoln was a white supremacist. So was just about everybody else in the North. There was really no difference on that issue. Identity. Well, they all thought of themselves as Americans. Just Southerners actually used George Washington as their symbol. There's no real difference in identity there. Money. Yeah, I would agree. Power was important. Money was important. And faith. Well, differing views on denominational but, I mean, all these people were Christian, though you could say that uh, the northern view was a little different than the southern view. So, when he says this, you're led to think, oh, yeah, the South is all these things, right? It's an implacable, the South is the implacable minority. Is it? Lincoln only got 39.6% of the popular vote. So, who really is the implacable minority in this particular situation? The Republicans. And they gave no quarter. They didn't. 
Newspaper headlines warn of an impending civil war. In a recent YouGov uh, economist poll, 54% of self-identified strong Republicans thought a civil war was at least somewhat likely in the next decade. I mean, these are just stupid polls, but um, I, I don't think that's going to happen. Okay, I mean, mark me wrong, but I don't think there's going to be anything like that. Such fears can seem hyperbolic, and the prospect of great armies forming and clashing in the continental U.S. is blessedly remote. Yet, honesty compels us to confront this fact. While civil war in the third decade of the 21st century is unlikely, civil chaos with episodic violence is already with us. Yeah, I mean, we have that, right? Mostly from the left. We do ourselves no favors by pretending that somehow everything will just work out. And I've, I gave a podcast years ago, probably, I think it's about six years ago now, on the politically violent left and how they're the most dangerous entity in the history of Western civilization. The left always is. They're the most dangerous. They always will be the most dangerous. And they're the most idiotic, too. History can inform our struggle over the survival of democratic institutions and, as important, should help us see the imperative of pursuing justice. For while Lincoln cannot be wrenched from the context of his particular times, his story does illuminate the ways and means of politics. The marshalling of power in a democracy, the persistence of racism, and the capacity of conscience to help shape events. The persistence of racism, you mean like Abe's own? <laughs> or how about Benjamin Wade's racism? Or uh, many of the other people that were... I mean, look, even Charles Sumner said things that would be considered racist. right? So is, are you talking about that racism? I don't know. Obviously not, because for Meacham... We have a pure, unstained north of righteous good guys attacking these dark heathens in the south. These terrible, traitorous, rebellious subhumans. He governed a nation in which a violent and vociferous element was captive to its own visions and controlled by its own interests. You mean like the abolitionists? <laughs> because this is what people were calling them. Right? You see, but no, 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 no. This is the Southerners that were like this. Not, see, only those people. This is, this is why all of this stuff that gets written like this, it's a half-truth. Yes, there were partisan Southerners, and they were called out too. And if you look at, when we get, again, the cause of the war class, and I'm just going to, I want you to take this thing eventually. Uh, when you look at the two sides, I mean, and you look at what historians have said, they, they're very critical of both, right? You have fanatics on both sides. But for Meacham, it's only one side. Lincoln in the North, no fanatics there. No people there that were causing problems. They were just good people, just doing good things. And the reactions to it were just evil. Domestic slavery is the great distinguishing characteristic of these southern states and is, in fact, the only important institution which they can claim as peculiarly their own. Abel P. Upshur, a Virginian, who served as Secretary of State under John Tyler, wrote in 1839. Well, of course, you see, there's a reason why Meacham pulls out Upshur, and Upshur was a defender of slavery. Upshur wrote a very good defense of nullification. And so, there you go. It's all about slavery, right? It's all about slavery. It's the only thing that differed the two that were that differentiated the two regions was slavery. That was it. Nothing else. Now, of course, historians have spilled uh, you know gallons and gallons of ink pointing out this wasn't the case, that Upshur was not really correct about this. But 
there were a lot of similarities too. I mean, you could say that that was there was a lot of similarities between North and South. This is 1839, though. Was that the case in 1861? We'd gotten two decades beyond this point. White Southerners dreamed of a slave empire headquartered in the American South, but stretching to Cuba, to Mexico, to Central and South America. Such a white-dominated new nation, a Charleston, South Carolina newspaper wrote, would ensure slaveholders a great destiny. A, was, the, was the North not a white-dominated entity? In fact, John C. Calhoun, this is the one thing that uh, Bob Elder points out in his book on Calhoun. That I mean, I talked about this. Bob Elder says when Calhoun said that the United States was a white government, he was correct about that at the time. This is what everybody thought. Was that not uh, the? I mean, was that not the case in the North? I mean, were were blacks registered in large numbers to vote and voting in uh, you know huge numbers in northern elections? No, in fact, they were prohibited in many states. Lincoln's own state, Lincoln's own state, had laws against blacks even living there. So how was this uh, one racist section against a non-racist section? Again. This is Time Magazine. It's popular, and people are going to read it and like, oh yeah, oh yeah, the South. No complexity, no nothing, just a dope writing dopey history. A partisan dope writing dopey history. Lincoln kept the American experiment in self-government alive when it seemed lost. He did. The American experiment. He kept the experiment of self-government by invading a people who had, through Conventions elected by the people voted for independence? That's keeping the experiment of self-government? He just crushed it. There's no self-government there anymore. He did not do so alone. Ordinary people, black and white, sacrificed to preserve the Union against the designs of the rebel South. We're not ordinary people fighting for the South. It's just ordinary people in the South. It's just a bunch of oligarchs. I mean, that 5% of the Southern population that controlled most of the slaves in the South were out there doing all the fighting. No common people at all fought in the South. No just ordinary people took up arms and defended their homes. None of that. It's just in the North that this happened. But Lincoln was instrumental in his ultimate vision of the nation, that the country should be free from slavery, was informed by a moral understanding of, <laughs> of life. Yeah, okay. Okay, Lincoln. Okay, Meacham, again, there's been a lot of work done on this. And Lincoln, uh, he didn't like slavery. I mean, I'll say this. He didn't like slavery. But Lincoln was, was, would have agreed to allow slavery to exist. We know it because it's on the record in his message to Congress in December of 1862. He would allow slavery to exist into the 1920s in the United States. So how is that? Saying the country should be free from slavery. Yeah, 80 years from now. <laughs> I mean, this is funny. It's so funny. This is like third grade history. To him, America ought to seek to practice the principles of the Declaration of Independence as fully as possible. For the alternatives are so much worse. We should practice the principles of the Declaration of Independence. You mean like the part where Jefferson at the end says uh, we, uh, that these states are free and independent states? Where he indicts the king for all the abuse of power, the same exact things Lincoln has done? You mean those principles of the Declaration? 
or one line. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. That proposition, right? One line or the declaration. Which one is it? Because you see what what all these leftists, and then by default, the Straussians, the neocons, they all the declaration is one line. It might as well just be written one line. And then other than that, no. How about Jefferson's phrase that they have a right to alter or abolish their government? Not just a right, but a duty to do so if the government becomes abusive of life, liberty, and property, which he said happiness, but we all know what he was talking about there. Is that not the principles of the Declaration? What part of that is Lincoln defending? None of it. Is this the same Abraham Lincoln that during the Mexican War stood up and said, you know, people anywhere have a right to revolution? So again, John Meacham is being a car. He's being a, just a, a, a cartoonist here. This is, this is a, such bad history. It shouldn't even be published. What if the constitutional order had failed and the union permanently divided? <gasps> maybe, maybe that would be uh, a success of the constitutional order. The whole idea of the constitution was federalism. If we have one size fits all government, we don't have that anymore. A durable, oligarchical, white southern slave empire, surely stretched and possibly expanded, would have emerged from the war. And as Lincoln saw, the viability of self-government would be in ruins. What a stupid statement. I mean, this is just stupid. There's no other way to describe it. And I remember, again, uh, I just love using that. This is this is stupid. There's... I can't. I'm just flabbergasted by what a stupid statement. Now, this is what you get. This is a leftist, but the right says a lot of this stuff too. Michael Anton would say something very similar to this. He does. All the neocons do. All the Straussians do. But there's a very famous essay that came out in 1980. And um, in this essay, the, the question was, were the North and South really that different? And the conclusion was, based on economic data, take out slave the, the wealth of slaves, right? You just pull that aside. If you want to say that that's illegal property, we'll just we'll go with that. I mean, slaves are illegal property, okay? The North and the South were no different economically. They had the same number of oligarchs. The same number of big businessmen, the same number of rich people. It's just that slave property inflated the numbers in the South because they had, you could sell slaves, right? So, but you emancipate all of that and those people don't have that money anymore. And now they're actually poor in some ways in the North. But you had rich people that control the North. This is where Herman Melville wrote poems about all the rich people that, you know, were uh, watching the riots of all the poor people in, in the North not wanting to go fight in the South and paying the commutation fees and everything else. You had just as much of an oligarchy, quote-unquote, in the North as you did in the South, if at all. Lincoln did not bring about heaven on earth, nor does he stand as a paragon of equality and justice for all. Yet he defended the possibilities of democracy at an hour in which the means of amendment, adjustment, and reform were under prolonged and almost successful assault. Wait a second. Uh... In 1860, there was an attempt by amendment to halt the war, to stop the sectional conflict, a, a, a process, by the way, that Jefferson Davis and Southerners were perfectly behind. Let's have, an, let's have some amendments to the Constitution that solves the sectional conflict. You know who wasn't? Abraham Lincoln. He said, don't, don't do it. 
Don't, don't, don't compromise here. And then here comes more Lincoln myth. Lincoln's motives were moral as well as political. Moral. His motives were moral? They were? He wanted to save his party. He launched a war that killed a million people. Is that moral? I mean, morality here, if that's moral, we've got some real morality problems in America. A reminder that our finest presidents and those who are committed not only to our pursuit of, to the pursuit of power, but also to bringing a flawed nation under closer to justice. Such requires an understanding that politics divorced from conscience is fatal to the American experiment in liberty under law. Uh, look, again, this is just really stupid history. The lesson is essential for us today in today's unfolding democratic crisis. We're in a democratic crisis, really? I mean, I don't, I don't see that. I, most people don't see a democratic crisis. This is what the left, they're fabricating this. And if you go back to the 1850s, it's exactly what the left was doing then, too. They're fabricating a crisis. There's no crisis here. There's no crisis of democracy. The forces of unchecked power are self-evidently in the ascendant. Yes, like the presidency? The, the uh, totalitarian left? Yeah. And they are the controlling element of one of our two major parties. Yeah, the Democrats. <laughs> yeah. The cancel culture people. The woke people. I agree. The Democrats are a problem. There's no self-reflection. There's no self-awareness in this piece. He's pointing out this is the Republicans, but in reality, it's the Democrats he's talking about. The past is not always prologue, but history suggests that our divisions are as deep as they have been since Lincoln's time, and thus his experience repays consideration. Well, I would say they're probably worse now than at Lincoln's time. We've got a whole section of a whole group, 50% of the United States, that doesn't share the same values as the other 50%. We've got people that are doing things that would have been considered mentally insane in the 1860s that no one would have done. There are more similarities between North and South in the 1860s than there are in 2022. I mean, there just are. When an element within the nation seeks its own power in its own way over and above any other factor, that element must be confronted or else everything must might be lost. Yeah, I agree. The left should be confronted for their quest for power, unchecked, unquenchable power, and they should be stopped. But no, this is not who Meacham's talking about. He's talking about MAGA. He's talking about Republicans. He's talking about people that uh, are on the right. In exploring Lincoln's example, we can see how arduous American democracy is, and we can glimpse what must be done to preserve it. This is, again, all just kind of word sallies or all just grand phrases without anything backing it up. An American president must be committed to something larger than his own hold on power. Okay, well, Lincoln wasn't. There's nothing larger about Lincoln. This is all about power. Because if he compromises, Lincoln becomes a one-term president. The Republican Party is done. And that's it. They compromise on the, on the territory issue, which was the big issue. Not in the South. Not slavery overall. But is it going to be allowed in the territories? That was it. That was the whole question. If they compromise on that, there's no more Republican Party. And the American people must be willing to accept the give and take of the constitutional order, even when, especially when, Events and moral claims call on us to give rather than to take. Lincoln is often depicted as either a secular saint, the savior of union, and the great emancipator, 
or as the calculating political creature imprisoned by public opinion and white prejudice. The truth is more complicated. Not, I mean, not according to you, Meacham. You've just outlined this, this cartoon. Driven by the convictions that the Union was sacred and that slavery was wrong, Lincoln was instrumental in saving one and destroying the other. He didn't really save the Union. He created, recreated something. We talked about this last week. Noah Feldman's book, The Broken Constitution, points out, yeah, everything the South has said about Lincoln was true. So we, we went from the original Constitution to something else. And he recreated, he recreated America, right? We created something else. A man of power. He ultimately demanded that the nation follow a moral path through the brute physicality of civil war. He demanded that we go through a war. Good moral guy right there. Morality. It's morality at play. I mean, again, you, you can't make this up. Lincoln's a moral man, but he demanded that we go to war. He demanded that we lose a million people. Well, that's a pretty big demand for a moral guy. His ancient faith, Lincoln once said, teaches me that all men are created equal and that there can be no moral right in connection with one man's making a slave of another. In common usage, to say something is moral is to say that it is about the degree to which one's conduct is in harmony with the commandment that one ought to do unto others as he would have them do unto us. From Plato to Kant, the substance of what is known as the golden rule, one common to the world's religious and moral traditions, has occupied philosophers across the ages. All right, let's keep going because that's just silly. Lincoln's own sensibility, both moral and political, was founded on this injunction. As I would not be a slave, so I would not be a master, he once said. This expresses my idea of democracy. For Lincoln, a world in which power was all, in which the assertion of a singular will trump, trumped all, in which force dictated all, was not moral but immoral. Not democratic but autocratic. Not just but unjust. Well, wait a second here. You just said... And with the assertion of a singular will trumped all. Lincoln's singular will. He just said, to a paragraph, a man of power, he ultimately demanded that the nation follow a moral path. So a singular will, which is autocratic, which is dictatorship, which is immoral. You just, you just define Lincoln's administration, but you're saying that's not what Lincoln was doing. In the White House, Lincoln defended black Americans as fellow human beings, whose fundamental rights were protected in the Declaration of Independence. Hardly the most common of arguments in his time. He did. Well, I mean, okay. Uh, maybe. Uh, but he also sometimes spoke in racist terms, did not immediately press for black people to be afforded the rights of citizenship enjoyed by white people, and proposed their voluntary removal offshore. Not just propose it, but pursued it up until 1865, and was willing to allow slavery to exist again, until the 1920s. And Lincoln portrayed his decisions on wartime emancipation as a last resort based on military rather than moral considerations. Well, all this is true. <laughs> so how can you say that Lincoln... Now, it, this is where Meacham gets into this. Well, Lincoln is, uh, is different, right? This was the pragmatic Lincoln that Frederick Douglass understood. Viewed from the genuine abolition ground, he said in 1876, Mr. Lincoln seemed tardy, cold, dull, and indifferent measuring him by the sentiment of his country. A sentiment he was bound as a statesman to consult. He was swift, zealous, radical, and determined. As Reconstruction gave way to Jim Crow segregation, which of course was formed in the North, Douglas's opinion was less widely shared. Abraham Lincoln was a Southern poor white, poorly educated, and usually, uh, unusually ugly, awkward, ill-dressed, cruel, merciful, 
Peace-loving, a fighter, despising Negroes and letting them fight and vote, protecting slavery and freeing slaves, W. Du Bois wrote in 1922. He was a man, a big and consistent brave man. In fact, Du Bois is more accurate on Lincoln there than anything else. That's a more accurate assessment of Lincoln than what Meacham is portraying here or Frederick Douglass. It is true that Lincoln did not seek immediate abolition. Neither was he a radical racial egalitarian. He was rather a gradual emancipationist who wanted to compensate slave owners. The anti-slavery Lincoln was born in and came to lead a nation in which anti-black prejudice was a fact of life. It was hardly a mighty current of sentiment abroad in the land to emancipate the enslaved and ex extend citizenship to the newly freed in a promised land of racial and civil equality. Yet to depict Lincoln as only a reluctant warrior against slavery fails to do him justice, you see. All these things are true, what Du Bois has just said, but this doesn't do Lincoln justice. He did not waver from a morally informed insistence that slavery be put on a path to ultimate extinction, you see, because even if it allowed to exist till the 1920s, that's still a path to ultimate extinction. It's different from the South, which wanted to expand it and keep it. That is true. I mean, there is a difference there. But would the South have been so interested in it as things change? I don't know. I mean, you can make a case the Southern states would have tried to figure out how to keep, this in, keep the institution uh, adapt it to industrial circumstances and other things. They were already trying. So Lincoln was against slavery. We know this, but he wasn't an abolitionist. He maintained this position to his political detriment throughout the 1850s. By the way, the 1860s. He won no major office between a single term in the U.S. House and his election to the presidency in 1860. Virtually, I'm sorry, vitally, he refused to retreat from his anti-slavery commitment during the crisis over secession in 60 and 61, a time when a purely political man might have done. And he stood by emancipation after 1862, declaring, I'm sorry, declining to give into pressure for a negotiated peace with the Confederacy in order to end a devastating war. He campaigned on an abolitionist constitutional amendment in 1864. Wait a second here. So his singular determination to destroy the Constitution and lead people through a war, even when there's a negotiated peace opportunity, is something that Meacham just announced, but then says it's a good thing. Right. And he was a purely political man. He was making a purely political decision in 1661. Anathema to much of what of the white South and to its allies in the North, Lincoln frustrated abolitionists who were more advanced than he on freedom and and egalitarianism. He was attacked for defending a constitution that protected slavery and for fighting to preserve a politics in which racial prejudice was a predominant factor. Um, he was attacked by a small minority, by the way. The implication of such criticism was that Lincoln made a fetish of the Union at the expense of pursuing true justice. The problem with such a view, ever, is that the Union, without the Union, there could be no freedom for the enslaved. Had Lincoln simply bade the South well and set about creating a separate free nation, he would have consigned millions of enslaved black people and their progeny to unrelenting and unrepentant masters. So see, here is Meacham's argument. Yeah, Lincoln could have made a choice. Let the South go. But that would have kept slavery in seven states. By the way, there were slave states in the Union when Lincoln took over as president in 1861. Those states would have eventually, I guess, had freedom. I mean, there probably would have been a constitutional amendment, but maybe not. We don't know what would have happened there. We don't know if Lincoln would have accepted that. We don't know if the Congress would have done anything about it or the states themselves. Douglas wrote that he would prefer the union even with slavery than to allow the slaveholders to go off and set up a government. 
The successful Confederate States of America might well have expanded its reach southward. Thus, after January 1, 1863, Lincoln's War for Union was simultaneously a war for Union and for emancipation in the seceded states. After congressional passage of the 13th Amendment in early 1865, it became a war for Union and for emancipation for all. Uh, but look at what Douglas says. He would prefer the Union, even with slavery, than to have a separate confederacy. So, obviously, this is more about the Union than anything else. But, after this, Lincoln made it a war to free slaves and then to uh, made slavery the big issue, right? Lincoln understood the magnitude of the issue, and he knew that it, upon its resolution rested the fate of American democracy, if American democracy was to be the project by which the nation sought to live up to the promise of the Declaration. Quote, slavery is not a matter of little importance, Lincoln said in 1858. It overshadows every other question in which we are interested. As he confronted the question, he judged political reality in his own moral convictions, convictions that he hoped the nation would come to share. Well, if you don't, we'll just kill you, right? I mean, that was the point. And uh, we'll just invade and we'll single-handedly lead a million people to their demise. Sure. Plus, this doesn't even count all the dislocation, starvation, disease that took place in the South among slaves. In fact, uh, there's been some really interesting estimates that <laughs> a, over a million slaves were killed during the war or died as a result of the war. Moral. Moral calls right here. It's moral. The work of a democracy is to lead a sufficient number of individuals to share a moral vision about power, liberty, justice, security, and opportunity in the hope that people and peoples might be in closer harmony with the good it's the form of the good. The work of democracy is an ideology, right? This statement is very important. Plato had this notion of the form of the good, right? And that's exactly what Meacham just said here. We have this ideology. There's this, there's this mystical form of the good that we all must achieve. And to do it, we have to do all X, Y, and Z to get there, right? It becomes an ideology. And we're going to be single-minded in doing that. It's to lead people to the form of the good through our abusive war. As a multitude of individuals, a nation possesses a collective conscience, one that is manifest in how that nation chooses through the means of politics to view rights and responsibilities. In the 1860s, war was required to bend the arc of the moral universe toward war was required. Sometimes it's okay to go to war. It's required. I mean, this is insanity. It's, it's psychopathy. It's required to kill a million people to do this. It's required. Sometimes you have to just require it. You've got to go to war to do it. That is a great fact of the American story. Secessionist white Southerners chose to fight and to die rather than surrender an aristocracy of race. That's not why. In fact, th the evidence is all against that. James McPherson wrote a whole book on it and didn't come to that conclusion. And we know the large number of white Northerners who were racist as well weren't doing that either. They weren't fighting against that. The Civil War, Lincoln told Congress in 1861, presents to the whole family of man the question whether a constitutional republic a democ or a democracy, a government of the people by the same people, can or cannot maintain its territorial integrity against its own domestic foes. A government can make... The, the whole question is, is a government, not the Constitution... Not the fabric of the union, but a government. Whether governments, states, can ward off popular will. 
can ward off democracy. If they can by force, well, then that just means the states can maintain their integrity by killing people. Well, we know that can happen, and Lincoln proved it. The battle of the third decade of the 21st century is, for now, of a different scale. But we have already seen attempted insurrection. Many adherents of one of our two major political parties refuse to accept the legitimacy of the 2020 election. Yeah, like Stacey Abrams, or 2018, or... Hillary Clinton, 2016. This is where uh, Kari Lake, it was funny if you haven't seen this, she was asked, she's running for governor, Arizona, I was asked, are you a 2020 election denier? She said, well, let me let me ask you this. And so she had this 20-year-old kid come over and hand her a bunch of stuff. What about this? Do you call these people, do you call Stacey Abrams an election denier? How about Hillary Clinton? Do you call them election deniers? Here are their own words saying these things. Are they election deniers? And you could have heard a pin drop. The left has no response for this. Because they did it all. They all denied the 2016 election, the 2018 election in Georgia. They've done it. They denied the 2000 election. They denied it. And of course, the response is, well, they conceded. They, 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 uh, they conceded. They eventually conceded. Well, Trump conceded. He left. He didn't stay in there. He didn't try to... It, it, the army didn't, wasn't called up to keep Biden from assuming office. He left. So he conceded. This is just stupid. Setting the stage for subsequent denials of reality as soon as next month's midterms. What happens if I'm gonna I will make a prediction? If there is a red wave and the Republicans sweep the Congress and blow out the Democrats, they will start whining about illegitimate elections. That these elections were stolen because Republican attempts to keep them from the polls and all the other things they've done before. So who is going to be an election denier? Well, of course the Democrats will then do it. Again, because they've already done it once or twice. Or several times. Once, twice, three times a lady, right? They've already done that. While the Civil War era, therefore, is not a precise analogy, we would be, dere- we would be derelict in our duties as citizens if we not reckon with what Lincoln reckoned with. The often self-sacrificing demands of decency and of democracy. On that march in Monday in 1861, Lincoln spoke to the ages. Quote, We are not enemies, but friends. We must not be enemies. Though passion may have strained, it must not break our bonds of affection. The mystic cords of memory stretching from every battlefield and patriot grave to every living heart and hearthstone all over this broad land will yet swell the chorus of the Union when again touched as surely as they will be by the better angels of our nature. Um, Now, of course, that particular line, this memory, this is the Lincoln myth. What, What you have to understand... This is the Lincoln myth. This is what Meacham is trying to do here, right? So be like Abraham Lincoln and kill a million people if they don't agree with you. This is what we have to do to save democracy. This is, I mean, in many ways, what you're saying is Lincoln, the Lincoln response to political opposition, which was single-minded violence, is the way to go for the left if they don't get their, if it doesn't work out their way. The words are immortal, as are angels, but Lincoln teaches us now, even now, that those angels will not take up the cause unless we do too. So this is a call to action. This is a dangerous piece. Anytime you start bringing up Lincoln against political opponents, it's a dangerous piece. Lincoln chose violence, war against his opponents. And Meacham is saying, this this guy's peaceful. He was just peaceful. He chose war. John, John Meacham is calling for war against his political opponents. 
He's phrasing it as the same kind of thing. We have these two irreconcilable things, and we have to have war against our opponents. This is an absolutely irresponsible and stupid piece, and I can't can't believe Time Magazine published it because they're stupid and irresponsible too. But this is the kind of stuff you get from mainstream historians now, masquerading as, well, I would say mainstream propagandists masquerading as historians. All right. See you tomorrow on the Brian McClanahan Show. See you then. (laughs) 